0: Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane on Friday, July the 18th. This week's issue of the Lancet, that's July the 19th to the 25th, has a dementia theme ahead of a major dementia meeting taking place in Chicago next month. As our lead editorial says, Dementia is perhaps the cruelest manifestation of aging, inexorably melting away all which makes us individual and human. In research, we published a drug trial showing how the drug Dinobin, in a previous life used as an antihistamine, could slow Alzheimer's disease up to a year or more in people with mild to moderate disease, so some encouraging news there. However, another research article shows how vaccination to prevent the build-up of amyloid plaque in the brain, closely associated with dementia, does just that. It prevents the plaque build-up, but was not found to improve cognitive ability among those vaccinated. Also this week, we published a case control study as part of the InterHeart study. This assesses the most appropriate use for measuring lipoprotein concentrations as a risk factor for coronary heart disease. Earlier, I spoke to one of the authors of this study, Matthew McQueen from McMaster University in Canada. Professor McQueen, you're one of the authors of a research article, the InterHeart Study, in this week's issue of The Lancet, and this is looking at the assessment of risk of coronary heart disease using indicators such as cholesterol. What is the current debate surrounding lipoproteins or apolipoproteins in the assessment of coronary heart disease?
1: I think if we put it into a simple term, I think what we're really looking at here is a a debate or a controversy as to how we should be guided in our assessment and then treatment of risk for coronary artery disease. So as we set out to do in the paper, we looked to see this ratio of apolipoprotein B to apolipoprotein A1. Is it or is it not a better predictor for coronary artery disease than the accepted ratio, the one that's used in standard clinical practice, which is total cholesterol to HDL cholesterol? So that really is what the debate is about. Should we be moving in those directions? Because underlying it, I think, is that all the major guidelines are based on the proposition that LDL cholesterol, the bad cholesterol, low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, is the most clinically useful lipoprotein-related index of risk of vascular disease. But there have been reports which have been suggesting that Apple b is better as a prime index of risk. And the controversy comes out, some clinical studies say yes, some clinical studies say no. And relatively recently, I think there was two that suggested that while the Apple B was better than LDL cholesterol, the ratio wasn't necessarily giving us more information. So that's really what the debate is about. Whether studies and the conflict is coming up from the studies, could we help to resolve that
0: how in terms of the design and methodology of the study, did you do that? What did you set out to achieve?
1: We did a case control study, and part of the reason that the case, case control study is that we drew on cases and controls from the same population in fact, a large study it was fifty two countries with two hundred and sixty two centers and uh, we took so it was case controls, so we had approximately 12,400 cases, and 14,600 and a few more controls. And what we were then doing was we took care to minimize confounding in the selection of the cases, controls, and the procedures. So we used more than one type of control to increase the generalizability and the feasibility of the study. But in each case, we excluded individuals where there could be confounding because of prior knowledge of cardiovascular disease. And what was interesting was actually when we re the results by the types of controls, whether they were hospital-based controls or community-based controls, we found no difference. So that added, I think, robustness to the findings. And our approach of using a standardized case control design was very deliberate because we wanted to examine the association of various factors. And the only practical way to provide reliable information, because one of our criticisms of the other studies is there really were very few events in many of the studies. And if you've got closely linked uh, factors, you really need quite a large number of events to be able to tease apart and see uh, are those factors lending, uh, giving us different information in different situations. The large number was the only practical way we felt to get reliable information, particularly as we wanted to cover young ages as well as old. And we wanted to deal with multiple ethnic groups. We also wanted to deal with men and women. uh, And as I say, we wanted to deal with various age groups. So in order to do that, we really required a very large numbers of people and that's why in total there's something like 27,000 people involved in the study.
0: Just going back one step again, can you just clarify the difference between overall cholesterol, lipoproteins and ApoA and ApoB? Are we all talking about differences within the same overall class of lipoproteins?
1: In general terms, we use terms like fats or lipids and that includes a whole variety of different groups of substances and one of those substances is a sterol cholesterol. Cholesterol has to be transported uh, when it's produced. So it's transported as a complex with apolipoproteins. So when we measure cholesterol, we can be measuring total cholesterol. When we then talk about cholesterol being combined with a a lipoprotein, it then becomes an apolipoprotein. So ApoB is the main structural protein of the atherogenic lipoproteins and A one the main structural protein of the HDL particles. So what we're really looking at here is not just looking at the total cholesterol uh, or the cholesterol as it's combined with uh, in low-density lipoprotein or high-density. We're actually measuring the main structural protein of the LDL, which is APOB, and the main structural protein of HDL, which is A
0: one it's a case-control study, and you're looking for events and numbers, obviously for statistical power as well, to try and generate meaningful results. So how would you summarise those results?
1: The key results, and we've used the term population-attributable risk, and I don't want to get into statistical discussions about what that is, but in essentially population-attributable risk is an estimate of the proportion of an event that can be attributed to a particular risk factor. So it allows us, or it can be used to assign relative importance of various risk factors. So if we take the ApoB, ApoA1 ratio, which is what I said at the beginning we are setting out to look at, it actually had the highest population attributable risk, that was 54%. When we compared that with the standard, the currently accepted total cholesterol to HDL cholesterol ratio, the population attributable risk there was 32%. So clearly, it's not quite twice as much population attributable risk, but it's getting very close to it. And what was also key to us and interesting in this was that this was consistent in all ethnic groups. So we had the varieties of ethnic groups. We just didn't have one particular group of individuals. We had six major ethnic groups, and the results were consistent in all of the ethnic groups. What was also of interest to us was that the results were also consistent in men and in women, and they were also consistent at all ages. So here was something that wasn't showing variation by age, uh, by gender or by by ethnicity. So its population attributable risk was powerful. It was the highest population attributable risk and it was totally consistent men, women, old, young and in all the six major ethnic groups that we examined.
0: We have a very clear result and you make it also quite clear in your conclusion that there are implications for for clinical practice straight away. In terms of how you measure this ratio between APO A and B, clinically, is it is it as easy to do as a simple, straightforward cholesterol test?
1: It is easy to do. There, there were difficulties in doing it in the past when it was non-standardised. It now has become standardised. Uh, it's now become automated. It's a very readily available uh, test. And also one of the advantages, individuals do not have to be fasting. And one of the problems in, in measuring the LDL cholesterol, or at least in calculating the LDL cholesterol, is that we're demanding that individuals be fasting. So it's got a number of benefits, and it's a, a relatively easily done test in any clinical laboratory.
0: So when should clinical practice change? Now? I, I do believe that we should be changing clinical practice Now?
1: The argument has gone on for a long time: should we or should we not? We now know we know that LDL cholesterol lowering is a potent, proven method to prevent cardiovascular events. We now know that looking at the apolipoprotein B, the apolipoprotein A one that that becomes an even better alternative target treatment. And the American Diabetes Association and the American College of Cardiology have in fact just issued a joint consensus statement that apoB b should be the final test of the adequacy of any LDL cholesterol-lowering treatment. Because not only in terms of prediction of risk, But it looks as though if we were to use a target of B, there's a number of people who are undertreated at the moment who would not be undertreated if we used those targets.
0: Professor Matthew McQueen on the line from McMaster University in Canada. Thank you very much indeed for talking to The Lancet. Thank you. Professor Matthew McQueen concluding this week's podcast. Many thanks for listening. See you next week.